welcome everybody. I have designed this talk to end abruptly at any time. First person to yell bingo after the speech ends wins the prize. This way I'm guaranteed your attention and you are guaranteed someone yelling bingo prematurely. Plus there's a prize, possibly a free t-shirt or a book. With my talk, everything you always wanted to know about money but were afraid to ask, with my talk I would like to accomplish three things. First, I want to explain some sound and time-tested basics of monetary theory. Second, I would like to point out why it is important to have a free market in money, that the battlefield of our time is not between, say, bitcoins, stablecoins, gold and silver, but between government-monopolized fiat monies and a free market in money. And third, I hope to strengthen your conviction that we need a free market in money. Unless we succeed in ending government's money monopolies, I fear we might end up in the most sinister tyranny the world has ever seen. And first, I would like to give you some reading recommendations, all of which you can download free of charge. Namely, Mary Rothbard's 1963, What Has Government Done to Our Money? Second, The Theory of Money and Credit, written by Ludwig von Mises in 1912. And again, Mary Rothbard, The Mystery of Banking, published in 1983. And finally, Friedrich August von Hayek's Denationalization of Money, published in 1960, 1976, it was. Let me ask you, what is money? The answer is, money is the, is the universally accepted means of exchange. As such, money is a good like any other. What makes it really special is that money is the most marketable, the most liquid goods in the economy. Money is no consumer good, nor a producer good. It, has, it is the exchange good. It is a good sui generis. What functions does money have? According to most economics textbooks, the answer is that money has three functions. It is means of exchange, unit of account, and store of value. Upon closer examination, however, we realize that money has just one function, and that is as a means of exchange. The unit of account function and the store of value function are merely sub-functions of the means of exchange function of money. This is easy to understand. The unit, of, the unit of account function expresses the exchange ratios of goods and services in money. For example, one apple costs one euro. The store of value, which can also be termed as the means of deferred payments, indicates that people hold money to exchange in the future rather than today. Money is an indispensable tool in an advanced economy characterized by the division of labor and trade. It serves as the common denominator, a numeraire, for all goods prices. And this allows for the calculation of the returns on the various alternatives of economic activity. In a complex economy, only monetary calculation can allocate resources to their most productive uses that is, uses that satisfy consumer demand best. Today's modern advanced economies could not exist without 
using money for economic calculation. An economy becomes richer if, we, if there are more producer and consumer goods. However, this does not apply to money. Why? Money, which has only use value derived from its purchasing power, is a good and as such determining its value falls under the so-called law of diminishing marginal utility. What does this law say? It says first, a large supply of goods is preferable to a smaller supply of goods. And second, the marginal utility of the additional unit of a good decreases. So an increase in the money supply in the economy reduces the marginal utility of the money unit compared to other goods. As people exchange their additional money holdings for other goods, money prices increase. Therefore, it, is actually, it actually makes sense to equate inflation with an increase in the quantity of money. The increase in the quantity of money is the cause and rising goods prices are its symptom. If money has only one function, which is as a means of exchange, it does not matter how small or large the money supply is. Whether the money stock is 1 million US dollars, 1 billion US dollars, or 100 billion US dollar does not matter. Regardless of the actual size of the money stock, any transaction volume in goods and services can be conducted with a given money supply. A large money stock of, say, 10 billion US dollars would lead to high goods prices, while a smaller stock of, say, 1 billion US dollar would lead to low goods prices. We come to the conclusion. No increase in the money supply can improve the monetary function of money. An increase in the money supply will merely dilute the effectiveness of each unit of money as a medium of exchange. In other words, an increase in the quantity of money brings no social benefit. Any quantity of money that exists at any given time is optimal. Now you may ask, why is the fiat money supply increasing in today's monetary regime, be it in the US, Europe, Asia or Latin America? The answer is that an increase in the quantity of money leads to a redistribution of income and wealth among people. It makes some richer at the expense of many others. Why? The first recipients of the new money benefit because they can purchase goods at unchanged prices with the newly received money. As the new money makes its way through the economy, it drives up goods prices. As a result, late recipients of the new money can only purchase at already elevated prices. The early recipients of the new money benefit at the expense of later recipients. This is the so-called Cantillon effect. And you can imagine that it is politically highly attractive to increase the money supply and to benefit from it. Especially as far as governments and the banking system is concerned. Where does our money come from? There are several theories about the origin of money. Most people today believe in the so-called state theory of money, put forward by the German economist Georg Friedrich Knapp, published in his book Staatliche Theorie des Geldes, the translation would be the state theory of money, in 1891. According to Knapp, it was the state that brought 
money to the people, like Prometheus brought the fire. In fact, a state is required to provide people with money. This theory has many flaws, and I think it's wrong, but I will not go into further details here. There's also the theory by the US anthropologist and anarchist activist David Graeber on the invention of money. It basically says that money originated from barter-based credit transactions. I will not go into further details on this theory either. I would like to draw your attention to the theory of the origin of money put forward by Karl Menger in 1871, the Austrian economist. Menger argues that money originated in the free market, voluntarily adopted by self-interested people from barter and from a commodity. Menger's theory was later given a rigorous logical foundation by the Austrian economist Ludwig von Mises with his so-called regression theorem. More recently, a discussion has erupted as to whether, for instance, Bitcoin, cryptos or stable coins could become money from a regression theory in perspective. As far as I know, quite a few responses have emerged. I, for my part, conclude that the regression theorem does not by any, does by no means rule out that Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies could become money. I may only add here that the regression theorem holds a priori, which means it cannot be verified or refuted by experience. If something becomes money, it means it conforms with the regression theorem. May I ask you, would you prefer to have money that loses, that loses its purchasing power over time, or would you rather hold money that keeps or even increases its purchasing power over time? I think most people in their right mind would opt for money with stable purchasing power or money that gains in purchasing power. This would imply a money that comes with deflating goods prices over time. But wait, what would happen if goods prices didn't rise or even fell over time? If that were the case, wouldn't that cause a significant problem for the economy as a whole? Let us assume people opt for money that has a constant supply. You may think of people using Bitcoin as money, and the total amount, as you know, of Bitcoin is a constant 21 million units, at least theoretically. An increase in the economic output would then, other things being equal, lead to de a deflation in goods prices. Wouldn't it drive the economy over the cliff? Wouldn't it destroy firms' profits? Wouldn't consumers stop consuming? The answer to all this question is no. A firm's profit is simply the spread between revenue and costs. In an economy where the prices of goods are rising, which is the case in today's inflationary regime, the successful entrepreneur must ensure that revenues grow faster than costs. Likewise, in a price deflation regime, the firm must ensure that its costs fall faster than its revenues. A firm that produces goods and services per market demand can flourish in a price inflation and price deflation regime. This also means that there is no need for a chronically rising money supply. A constant or even shrinking money supply would be just fine. What would price deflation do to consumer demand? 
Wouldn't people refrain from buying goods today because they can expect to buy them at lower prices in the future? The answer is no. We cannot come to such a conclusion and with good reason. First, there are goods and services the consumption of which cannot be postponed. Think of food, clothes, shelter, etc. Whatever the price tomorrow, next week or next month, we must purchase them today. And second, there is a phenomenon in the realm of human action called time preference. Time preference means that people value a good available today higher than the same good under the same conditions at a later time. Time preference manifests as the so-called originary interest rate. This is the discount, the value of a future good suffers compared to the value of a present good. Time preference and the originary interest rate are always positive and can never disappear, as they are categories of human action. To illustrate what time preference means for people's action, let me give you a simple example. Imagine a car costs $50,000 today and just $25 in a year. Whether people will buy today or postpone their purchase depends on the concept of marginal utility. Of course, the marginal utility of buying the car for $25,000 ranks higher on people's value scale than paying $50,000 for the car. However, when it comes to deciding to buy now or later, people compare the discounted marginal utility of purchasing the good for $25,000 in a year from now to the marginal utility of buying it for $50,000 dollars today. I'll give you a little illustration of what I'm talking about. If the discounted marginal utility of buying the car for $25,000 in a year is lower than the marginal utility of buying it for $50,000 now, people will buy it now. If it is higher, they will postpone their purchase. Since people's time preference can never be zero or for logical reasons, let alone be negative, we cannot conclude that people will postpone their purchases only because of lower goods prices in the future. This little illustration tells us this. There would be nothing wrong with goods prices falling instead of rising. The economy may very well thrive when goods prices decline. And so again, the quantity of money in an economy doesn't have to grow. It can also be constant or even shrink over time, and so can goods prices. But what about credit markets, when goods prices decline, you might wonder? If, for instance, prices fall by 3% per year, the purchasing power of money increases by 3% per year. In that case, I wouldn't trade my money for, say, a T-bill that yields only, say, 2% per year. To entice me to part with my money, a borrower would have to offer a return on the investment greater than the increase in the purchasing power of money, say 3.5%. With declining goods prices over time, market lending rates would approach zero in nominal terms. The price component would become negative, corresponding, grosso modo, with a positive real interest rate component. It may well be that under such conditions, borrowing would become more expensive than in today's fiat money world. 
Firms, however, could fund their expenditures by retaining earnings and rights issues rather than taking on new debt. And people would invest a higher portion of their savings in, say, company stocks and bonds. So in a world of goods price deflation, credit markets can be expected to function just fine. But they certainly wouldn't be as overblown as they have become in today's fiat money regime. Bitcoin fans may know the following phrase all too well. The Bitcoin price is too volatile and therefore it cannot be money. This is, of course, not a convincing argument. At the beginning of its life cycle, the demand for an innovation is typically relatively low. This applies to Bitcoin as well as to crypto units and other stablecoins, say. However, once Bitcoin becomes more widely accepted, its demand will grow broader and less volatile. It will become less volatile. Its market price, its exchange rate against sales item will show fewer fluctuations. The finding that the Bitcoin price is relatively volatile right now would not rule out the possibility that Bitcoin could eventually become money. Another interesting question is, would people like to have money that causes goods, goods prices to fluctuate widely, or would they prefer money that keeps goods prices a bit more stable? Take for instance gold. The yellow metal has use value as money and as a non-monetary good resulting from, for example, industrial applications. Bitcoin, in contrast, has only one purpose to serve as a means of exchange. Suppose people use Bitcoin as money, then, for whatever reason, people suddenly prefer to hold less money, less Bitcoin. They exchange their Bitcoin for goods, and so the prices of goods in terms of Bitcoin increase. As Bitcoin is solely held for monetary purposes, there are no counteracting market forces to support its value. When gold is used as money and people decide to reduce their gold holdings for whatever reason, this would also drive up goods prices in gold terms. At the same time, however, the demand for gold for non-monetary purposes would increase because gold has become cheaper, counteracting, at least to some degree, the rise in goods prices. In other words, in an economy where Bitcoin is used as money, goods price inflation would most likely be higher than in an economy where gold is used as money. However, I cannot say whether Bitcoin with a higher goods price inflation or lower, uh, or gold with a lower goods price volatility would be better money from people's perspective. Only a truly free market in money where the demand for and the supply of money are truly free could give us the answer. When we think about money, present and future, there's an issue which we should not overlook, and that is the intermediation issue. We have pretty good reason to believe that not all money users will want to or can rely on peer-to-peer -peer transactions. In a, modern, in a modern, highly developed economy, people demand settlement, storage and safeguarding services for their money provided by intermediaries, such as deposit banks and payment processors. By the way, this also applies to the crypto space. Just think of the large number of people holding their cryptos with trading platforms rather than in their personal wallets. Developed credit markets cannot function without specialized intermediaries who channel money from savers to investors. Borrowing and lending decisions require personal judgment, and such judgment is difficult 
if not, in, if not impossible, to make in an anonymous and trustless environment where automatic computer logarithms prevail. Also, the deposit business can, cannot function without clear designations. Money that does not or cannot provide for some kind of intermediation services would severely hamper, one has to fear, economic development and would likely be overtaken by alternative money that allows for intermediation services. This conclusion does not speak against Bitcoin or other cryptos. However, it does pour some buckets of ice, of ice water on the idea that anonymous and trustless money would emerge out of necessity or naturally. Without complete anonymity, Bitcoin and co. would lose an attractive competitive advantage over, for example, digital gold or silver-backed money and payment systems. Unfortunately, however, with, complete, with, uh, complete, with incomplete anonymity, the government will be breathing down people's neck in all monetary matters, as you know. Be it Bitcoin, money, gold and silver money, or any other form of money. I will come back to this issue later. It is now time to take a critical look at today's worldwide paper or fiat money regime as it is an economically and socially problematic system with far-reaching and seriously challenging economic and societal consequences, implications that go well beyond what most people can imagine. Fiat money is inflationary. It loses its purchasing power over time. And the US dollar, the euro, the Chinese, remember even the Swiss franc, they're all fiat currencies. Fiat money benefits a few at the expense of many others, so we can say that fiat money is socially unjust. Fiat money causes boom and bust cycles. It sets into motion an artificial economic upswing followed by crash. Fiat money leads to over-indebtedness. It is created through credit expansion and the economy's debt burden exceeds income growth. Fiat money allows the state to grow ever bigger and more power, become more powerful. It makes waging wars cheap and all this at the expense of civil liberties and freedom, paving the way towards tyranny. I should note here that we should not fall into the belief that the widespread use of fiat money indicates voluntary acceptance by money users. In a world where governments have monopolized money production, currency competition is suppressed, and people are effectively coerced into using fiat money for two reasons. First, governments have established so-called legal tender laws that effectively privilege the use of government fiat money over alternative means of exchange. And second, governments have levied capital gain taxes and or sales taxes on goods that might compete with fiat money, such as gold, silver or bitcoin, making them in many regions of the world as of today uncompetitive compared to fiat money. States and their central banks want to maintain their fiat money monopoly. They do not want private monies to compete with their fiat currencies. To tighten their grip on monetary matters, central banks are even planning to issue central bank digital currencies, as we heard earlier this morning. This is, unsurprisingly, rather problematic. First, central bank digital currencies are not better money. They represent fiat money. As such, as such, fiat central bank digital currencies suffer from the same economic and ethical defects as physical and electronic fiat monies. 
Second, central bank digital currencies will most likely replace cash or allow governments to phase out coins and notes. People would lose an important option for making anonymous payments and what little is left of their financial privacy will be gone. Third, without cash, your money can no longer be withdrawn from the banking system. It can be expropriated by negative interest rates imposed by the central bank. Fourth, as acceptance grows, the central bank digital currency can easily be instrumentalized for broader political purposes. Just think of China's social credit system. Imagine, if you will, only getting access to central bank digital currency if you comply with the government's directives or comply with the wishes of those special interest groups that determine government orders. If you don't obey, you suffer disadvantage. You, no longer, you can no longer travel, order certain newspapers and books, or buy groceries. Your accounts may be frozen and your money even confiscated if you dare dissent too much. The list of such anti-freedom atrocities made possible in a world of central bank digital currencies is endless. Perhaps it is the right time, the right moment to direct your attention to the fact that the idea of central banking and by extension central bank money, be it in physical or in digital form, is not a capitalist but a Marxist concept. In his manifesto of the Communist Party from 1848, published together with Friedrich Engels, Karl Marx calls for so-called measures by which he meant despotic inroads, despotic encroachments on property rights that would be inevitable as means of completely revolutionizing the mode of production, that is, bringing about communism. Marx's fifth measure reads, quote, centralization of credit in the hands of the state by means of a national bank with state capital and exclusive Monopoly, quote ends. Undoubtedly, holding the money, money monopoly puts the monopolist in a rather powerful position. It determines who gets credit and money and who doesn't. It influences the cost of credit and capital and the distribution of income and wealth. So it is not surprising that, especially with the monopoly over fiat money, states have become bigger and more powerful over time. Measured in terms of their spending and debts relative to GDP, the number of regulations, laws, etc. You may have noticed that the system of free markets of capitalism is by and large in disrepute, not only in Europe but in other regions of the world as well. People blame the free market and capitalism for all sorts of evils, financial and economic crises, unemployment, income and wealth disparities, environmental pollution, etc. But let me tell you that we do not have capitalism, not in Europe, not in the US or in China. What we do have is so-called interventionism, an economic and social system in which the state intervenes in the functioning of the free market, for example, through orders, laws, bans, regulations, taxes, subsidies, sanctions, by meddling with education, healthcare, transportation, pensions, the environment, and the credit and money system. From sound economic theory, we know, however, that interventionism would not work, that it either does not achieve its goals 
or if it does, it causes unwanted and negative side effects. Unfortunately, the failure of interventionism emboldens its staunch supporters to take recourse to even broader, even more aggressive interventions. As interventionism spreads, the free market system becomes easing, becomes increasingly undermined and dysfunctional. The economy is transformed into a control economy, or to use a German term, Befehls- und Lenkungswirtschaft, in which the state has the final say and producers and consumers are given orders. Against this backdrop, it is clearly concerning that the concepts of the Great Reset, Great Transformation and Green Policy are all expressions of the idea of interventionism. If the theory of interventionism is correct, and I fear it is, the Western world is moving away from the free economic and social order, which is ultimately a brainchild of the European Enlightenment and towards an unfree economic and social system. We have to be on our guard. In an interventionist regime, digitalization greatly increases the chances of a power grab by governments and their bureaucracies and special interest groups, which use both for their own purposes, such as big business, big tech, big pharma, big banking. And it is realistic to assume that all of these players want to achieve their goals by controlling money as much as possible. For this reason, the issuance of central bank digital currencies in particular must raise great concerns for those who want to preserve a free, prosperous and peaceful society. The good news is there are no convincing economic or ethical arguments why any government should monopolize money and replace the market's choice with its own fiat money. In fact, there are very good reasons to advocate for a free market in money. In a free market in money, people would have complete freedom to choose the kind of money they want to hold. And people would also have the freedom to offer goods that others may want to demand as money on a voluntary basis. In a free market in money, the demand for money will determine what money is. It is not the supplier that determines what money is, but it is determined by those who demand money. And we should have little doubt that people would most likely demand sound money, that is, money that is good and fair. How would money be chosen in a free market? To give an example, Mr. Miller would opt for something as money that his baker, for example, would accept as a means of exchange. The baker, in turn, would willingly accept something that he believes his cobbler will accept as a means of exchange. In other words, people would choose a money which will be highly preferred by his or her trading partners. That is, the good with the highest marketability and liquidity of all goods. And we tend to know which physical properties, at least, such a good must have. It must be, for instance, scarce, homogeneous, durable, transportable, mintable, divisible, and it must represent a relatively high exchange value per unit. This explains very well why, at least in the past, people have opted to use precious metals, especially in the form of gold and silver, as money, when <coughs> given a choice. The message I want to stress, and I think most of you know it very well, is that there is no reason to fear that a free market in money wouldn't work. In fact, it can be expected to work just fine. Like any other free market, such as, say, the market for sports shoes, books, music, 
cars and mobile phones. A free market in money would provide the best possible money at the lowest cost for the people. The critical question is whether new technologies alone can bring about better money. Recent developments in the markets for Bitcoin, crypto units and stablecoins are certainly promising, especially as they unmistakably show that people are already looking for better money. The many entrepreneurial attempts to digitalize the world's ultimate means of payment, namely gold, have also made exciting progress. While technological advances offer great opportunities to improve our money, they might not be enough, as states and their central banks do whatever they can to prevent a free market in money. What is also needed, in addition and on top of technological advances, is monetary enlightenment, as I put it. Familiarizing people with the insight that a government fiat money monopoly is actually destructive and harmful to them, especially informing people that there is better money for them, encourage them to demand sound money, money that serves their needs better than states' fiat currencies. This inevitably goes hand in hand with the eye-opening insight that states, as we know them today, stand in the way of people getting sound money. Once people realize that they, that they would be better off with a free market in money, the chances of ending, the ending state monopolies of money, legal tender laws and tax burdens imposed on potential money candidates greatly increase. And it may even result in the state, as we know it today, withering away. People must have the freedom to choose which kind of money they want to use, gold and silver, bitcoin or whatever else. Let me close with a quote from the Austrian economist Ludwig von Mises, who understood very well the importance of sound money for freedom and prosperity. Quote, the sound money principle has two aspects. It is affirmative in approving the market's choice of a commonly used medium of exchange. It is negative in obstructing the government's propensity to meddle with the currency system. And further, it is impossible to grasp the meaning of the idea of sound money if one does not realize that it was devised as an instrument for the protection of civil liberties against despotic inroads on the part of governments. Ideologically, it belongs in the same class with political constitutions and bills of rights, quote ends. A free market in money will make our world a better place. Thank you very much for your attention.